Is it time to stop giving mindless homework to our kids and are charter schools living up to their promise of innovation? We're going to talk about it today on the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered, looking to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy. I am your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. So let's dive in, Ravi. It's another week and we've got a lot to cover. But at the top, there's this video circulating on Twitter that is of a white woman teacher with a long line of black and brown kids who are entering her classroom, each one getting a special greeting from her as they go in, a personalized handshake from her to them and a hug in some cases. And for her hard work at trying to be culturally affirming and create a welcoming classroom, She got drugged on Twitter by a lot of people who were saying things like, that's a bunch of wasted time. She could be teaching. Can those kids even read? Oh my God, look at all this performative nonsense that she's doing, trying to be culturally appropriate and she's not. That was the feedback. And my bottom line on all this is, if she was saying, get in the classroom right now, sit down, open your books, let's get to work, let's blah, blah, blah. The same group of people would be saying, oh my God, it's culturally insensitive classrooms. You know, come on. Yeah, I find this fascinating because what do people want her to do? That's my question. Is there a special white people handshake that she's supposed to use at that door? Like, I don't get it. The whole debate around cultural appropriation, I think, is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. like, as somebody who's Indian, for example, like, a lot of these people, nobody's being like, yoga is cultural appropriation, you know? Like, the same people who are talking about, like, Paul Simon stealing X person's music are, you know, tap dancing their way to a yoga class, you know? There's like a fine line between inspiration and meeting people where they are and learning and trying to be fun and reflect your environment. And there's a line you cross at some point where it is truly appropriation. And I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt on this kind of stuff, especially educators. We want more people working in in schools all across the country. We want people mixing up with people who are different than them. We want to make that to be a safe and supportive environment, both for the kids and the teachers who you know, often like that exchange of experience is difficult, but it can be beautiful. And when I look at this clip, I see something beautiful. Yeah. Like it's not how I would greet kids, you know, but it's like, she's trying really hard. Like she's got connections with those kids. Here's what I heard from people, especially last night. I talked about it with a group of black educators and the response was kind of like, I wonder if there's any real learning going on in the classroom there. And that's five minutes out of your day that you could have been using to teach. And kids can't read and you're out here shaking hands in the hallway. Right. As if it's mutually exclusive. Yeah, right. right. Like yeah, we can't. should have the kids. Well, Chris, you have to have the kids sprint into the classroom like Usain <laughs> Bolt. You can't stop them. You right. can't stop them and say hello because that will take away from critical learning time. I'm sure all the people critiquing her are all about time management in the classroom. Like they must want the classroom to be a Swiss watch, <laughs> you know? Right. Anyways, here's the thing. Not a big topic except to say that there are 3 million teachers in the United States. Most of them look like this particular teacher. And many of them are trying to do things that they're being told that they need to do to to give extra, to be in contact with their kids in ways that affirm the kids and make the kids feel like that is a great learning environment for them. And if every time that they do it, it's met with scorn and dragging and malice or whatnot, I don't know what makes 3 million teachers eventually one day say, go to hell, teach your own kids. Right. Like if everything that I try, like, listen, there are things that are teachers that are doing are objectively bad, like bad practice and harmful. So when you find the ones who out of the goodness of their heart are doing things that are not at all objectively bad, you can say they're misguided or they're misplaced or whatever you want to say, but they're not bad. Why drag them for it? Unless you just want to eventually burn them out and have them say, go to hell, teach your own kids. Yeah. Shame on these people. Shame on them. Look, it's hard to be a teacher out there. Let's hold up our teachers this is somebody putting in a lot of effort to do what she's doing, clearly connecting with children. The kids look really happy to be there. That is a miracle. By the way, it is a miracle to get kids to show up with that kind of energy. It takes a lot of skill mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. We should applaud that. And like, this is the thing. We should not look to blue check marks to tell us 
what should be happening in our classrooms. You should look at the faces of those kids. And that's what I say to these people is like, are you looking at those kids? Do you even care what those kids feel as they walk into that classroom or not? Is that even the question you're asking or are you only care about how you feel? Do you want to get retweets and likes on Twitter from your friends? You know, you want to dunk on an educator who's probably underpaid and overworked, who's trying her very best to help these kids. Is What questions are you asking, is my point. I just want to say for the listening population, I am a authenticated blue check mark. <laughs> no offense I, to you. Look, I don't know that I need all of the hate no, this morning look, and the violence about blue check marks. Because <laughs> I do think people should listen to certain blue check marks, including me. <laughs> Sorry to offend you. Well, okay, let's talk about homework. All right, enough about her. Let's shout her out. Give her love. Shout out any teacher in your life who's doing good for kids, putting in the energy. But let's talk about homework, Chris. You sent me this video online. You're so online. YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. You just know everything that's going on. You sent me this video that basically says, hey, homework? Should we be giving homework? Is it a waste of student time? So it's a good opportunity for us to debate this subject to the extent there's any daylight between us. Well, my good friends at the Human Restoration Project have a video out and it's about homework and they have what they see as a logical reasons to actually end homework as a practice in the United States. And they talk about four things specifically. The first one is that homework doesn't necessarily lead to increased achievement. Their second one is that homework is inequitable and creates an inequitable system of learning where some kids have more access to like a quiet space or the ability to do homework or uh, time, you know, their, their life looks different at home. So if work is dependent on what you do at home, it's going to be inequitable for some kids. The third one is that homework actively harms their social lives and their school life balance, leaving some kids with as little as 15 minutes a night of playtime before they have to call it a night and go to bed. And the last one is that homework contributes to an ultra-competitive, unfair competition in education, when education should not be about competition, it should be about collaboration and individual learning. So they have a video called, It's Time to Stop Giving Homework. And it's not just their opinion, they also have like what they believe to be a research basis for making the call. So what do you think about this, Ravi, as an educator? Well, I think this this is one of those debates that's always oversimplified. Homework or not, or no homework, does homework work? Do we need to give less, less of it or more of it? The obvious dumb question to ask is, is the homework high quality or not? And is it connected to a strong vision of what should be in and outside of the classroom? Like, I agree that we shouldn't just give more. And like us, there is definitely the critique that quote unquote good schools tend to just give more because it's a sign that they're rigorous. Like that's not necessarily a great practice because it's often the least thoughtful material that teachers prepare. There is like, oh yeah, take this worksheet home, do it. It's like a way to just check a box sometimes. But if you're a teacher who has a really strong vision of what happens in the classroom and outside of the classroom, and you don't want to take up precious time in the classroom for drilling certain skills or memorizing things that are important to know, but you don't want to like use that precious time with the kid to have them memorize. Then I start to be like, all right, there's a role for that. But the bigger point is it's a failure of imagination right now. And it gets back to our competency-based learning point. In a world where we do competency-based learning, for those who are new to the podcast, like the sense that there aren't grade levels, but students advance through material as fast or as slow as they need to or can, then there is no such thing as homework and schoolwork. There's just work. And if you want to go home and do more of it, or you want to stay after school, and I'll talk more about like the equity angle of this, because I think there's critical infrastructure in and around the school that can make this more equitable or not. But if you want to advance through the material faster or slower and use time outside of school to do that, we should allow kids to do that, of course. And in that world, you don't need to require them to do it. And you don't have to waste their time with just busy work. But where do you come down on this? You know, this is one of those weird kind of political places. It's weird in this way. The Human Restoration Project is very much a leftist educational outfit. And I'm not a leftist, but I'm friends. (laughs) Uh, I consider myself to be friends with them on a lot of things that we believe in common. But they have all this like Alfie Cohen. And for people listening who don't know who Alfie Cohen is, he's an educator writer who's been writing books for years around like no testing. Kids just need to play and we don't need any grades. Grades are punishment and we don't need any homework. And it goes too far in my mind on a lot of that stuff. It's just like kind of anything goes when you think about it in context of a nation of kids who are far behind 
and many who are in certain segments of the population who are further behind than others who are also behind in the game of life, behind in the economy. So there's some practical stuff here. And then there's the stuff around like that's more emotive and emotional. Of course, I don't want kids saddled every night sitting at home doing worksheets. I have my own kids. I have one that has gotten a crazy amount of homework in some parts of the year where it really does start to look meaningless. Like you're just doing like it's stuff he's bored to death with. It's not stuff that he can't do or whatever. It's just, it's boring. A lot of worksheets, a lot of just stuff that's, and then, you know, it's like he comes home, he drops his book bag and he's done with school. He's tired of being at school. He's tired (laughs) of the day, right? Like, and now I get to Xbox it or go outside or whatever, but no, I've got 80 worksheets to do. Yeah. They're not thoughtful, honestly. And there's also like, you know, example is like when I was a kid, my mom worked two jobs. I had nobody to like get on me about doing homework. So that meant I often didn't do my homework, Mm -hmm. if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then a lot of my classmates, their parents would require them to sit down and finish their homework before they did anything. And often the parents would help them with their homework. Mm. And so you had that, that, that dual situation. Now the help with the homework, quote unquote, is not as important as it used to be because at a certain age, you can find anything on the internet to help you with your homework. But back then it was everything. You just didn't have the resources. But the idea that one parent's going to require it and whatnot, it's just, I agree that it has equity concerns. Now, I think the equity concerns could get overblown because there's an equity concern with nearly everything. Yeah. I actually don't know. I don't know enough to know what I'm about to say is true or not, but I have a sense that teaching, that homework is a crutch for teachers and that it helps them weed out who's who's ahead and who's not and understand who can do what. It's another way of testing. Like if the homework, they know who their studious kids are right away, who have the parents that are on them because the homework comes back neat the next day. Yeah. They know which ones don't ever turn it in or turn it in late or turn it in half done. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a way of kind of like, you know, observing their their classroom outside their classroom. It's also to me as a parent, makes me wonder, like, what are you doing during the day? Yeah. It's one of the things I would change. We used to give a lot of homework and I was just told, like when I started school, so it was like a rigorous school. It was two hours. I don't know if it was two hours. It was a lot of fucking homework, if I'm being mm, honest. A lot of Two homework. hours? I don't know. It was a lot. And the thing is, wow. two hours to one qu- kid is 20 minutes to another kid, depending on their levels. And this gets back to the competency-based learning stuff. It's like, you want to get the rigor right. But the idea that you're going to like somehow, you know, when I had kids coming into the fifth grade, some who couldn't read and some who are like significantly above grade level, the idea that a teacher who's already burnt out creating high quality materials for their daily lessons that we had very high expectations around is then going to then find the perfect scaffolded homework that's going to allow the kid who can't read and then the kid who's reading way above grade level to both act Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. way too much to ask. Mm -hmm. And once again, gets to the fundamental problems with the way we do school generally. But I do think if I could redo it and do the school over again, I wouldn't have like a rule against homework. I would just say, I would flip the presumption. I would be like, assign it if you have a strong vision for it. Let's talk about it. But let's do everything possible to increase the equity in resources to complete it. So are we going to keep the school open later and allow kids to stay after school for help or open up a homework club during lunch if kids want to stop by and and get help on that homework and make sure that we're handing out that homework early in the day so that they could seek help throughout the day to get it? Can we allow good faith attempts at it where kids can't finish because they don't have some critical piece of knowledge? Do we have a good transportation system? So if we're going to al- open the school later, is the public transportation system good enough to get allow the kid to go home later? Or are we going to offer another round of busing after the kids go home? Or are we going to only, are we going to have an hour at the end of the day that have like enrichment and yada, 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 but also allow kids to walk through the door in the homework? These all have trade-offs, obviously, but- I think there are things you can do in your school day, you know, flexible study hall periods, right? That like maybe, a, you know, and this is this is all the disease of more in schools. So you have to make sure that this balances with everything else. But like, is there a flexible hour in the school day that's just d- dedicated to kids doing unstructured learning on their own, at which time they can ask for help on homework or just have a quiet place to do it? Like, these are all important things that when when combined with high quality homework, help everybody succeed. Here's Here's what I would say to people. I've told this story before. And I don't know that it's true, but I'm still going to tell it anyways. <laughs> I learned in a, a session a long time ago that IDEO was brought in to help a hospital rethink its user experience in the hospital. And when they came to present to the CEO, they said, we have a video that will tell you everything that you need to know about what we figured out, but you have to promise to watch the whole thing uninterrupted. And he said, fine. What it turned out to be was it was a four-hour video of a ceiling tile. 
And the reason that they wanted him to watch this four-hour video of a ceiling tile is because they had been a, there had been a patient on a gurney who had been rolled into a hallway of a bunch of other gurneys, and that's what that patient looked at for four hours, oh was God. that ceiling tile. And that was the experience that that particular person had in your hospital. So you're going to sit here and you're going to have the same experience, and it's going to motivate you to think differently about the user experience of people on gurneys in your hallway, in your long hallway of people having the same experience every day. And when you re- because you're going to be so bored out of your mind and you want to hurt somebody from doing this, you're going to be motivated to change your system and you're going to make a Disney-like experience for people in the hallways of your hospital. That's beautiful. My challenge to people is to take the IDEO method and as an adult, go back to middle school for a day or two days for a week. Go back as a middle school student yourself, ask to do it, audit a class, and do what you are telling your kids they have to do. And come home at night and do three hours of homework a- after a full day of school uh, and in between dinner and your bath and your, your nighttime. And you do it for a week. And then let's see if you're going to have an IDEO type of experience. Where mm-hmm. You're going to think differently about this. Rather than having an opinion about uh, uh, homework, maybe we should put you through the same thing that your kids are going through. I guarantee you that school is more boring than you think it is. Yeah. And I guarantee it's not a thing where you say, well, we all had to do it. Yeah. And that makes sense in some kind of way. No, we didn't all have to do it, first of all. <laughs> like we. Yeah, so I think you and I are kind of in agreement on this. I think one of the things that's always a bit of a pitfall on this is that there are often people who are right about this for the wrong reasons. So they generally mm-hmm. hate any achievement orientation. They hate charter schools and they kind of, they group this together with that. And so we don't need to go into it. There was like this whole study from these Vanderbilt professors, which basically talked about like homework is the meritocracy and, and the sort of high performing charter neoliberal conspiracy, yada, yada. And I, w- I won't get into that, but just to say, it takes a lot of discipline to not just attack those people and just to be like, look, we may, we're, let's just agree. We may have different reasons for it. And some of those reasons may overlap, but I'm just going to agree with you that we need to rethink homework. Like that's just my, my whole point about this. But you talked about IDEO, you talked about innovating schools, and that's what makes me excited uh, about our guests. Like, we want to do more guests. I think that's the point. You and I love talking to each other, but we also have this incredible Rolodex of people we've met throughout the years who do amazing work in schools. And one of those people I met very early on, I got a fellowship where I was able to visit schools throughout the country, uh, high-performing charters, private schools, traditional public schools, everything in between. And I went to Boston, and I saw this guy named Michael Goldstein, who started a charter school network called Match. And what these people did was they had smart college students or or recent college graduates graduate and then move in almost like real world style into the top floor of a school and commit to a year or two of tutoring of students, or I think like unlimited amount of time essentially, but I think the program was a year or two where they would tutor kids in the school. And they would get really good results. It was really awesome. It was a beautiful space. And then Michael, who started that school, went on to become a member of the Bridge Internationals uh, Academies team, which is a, a large company that scaled a model of cheap for-profit schools in Africa and elsewhere that have shown incredible results. And I've been reading about those. So I wanted to talk to him about that. And now he's working on the math learning lab, which uh, is taking some of the things that he's learned in the tutoring space and in the international space to say, all right, how do we do tutoring in math, math instruction better? So these are three subjects you and I have talked about, at least two of them a lot. So I wanted to talk to a practitioner who's been out in the field for a long time, who knows a lot of this stuff. And so we're about to sit down with him. So really excited about this interview. All right, Mike Goldstein, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Mike, I met you back in Lord knows when, when I was traveling the country looking at high-performing charter schools, when I I got this fellowship from Building Excellent Schools, where they basically, I'd follow this woman named Sue Walsh around, shout out to Sue if she's listening, who was kind of like the Mrs. Miyagi of schools. Like she would take on a couple people every year and teach them how to run schools. And she introduced you saying something like, this guy is unconventional, like you, you're going to like this guy. And then I visited you in Brookline, right? That's where Match was? Yeah, that's where we started. And this was a network, Chris. I was telling you about it earlier. I'd never seen anything like it. It was basically like real world meets a charter school. Like you had a bunch of young Mm -hmm. kids living on the top floor of this beautiful building. And from what I understand, it was like a whole saga to get this building that you got. And they they would just tutor kids in small groups. 
So you had like one of the best ratios of students to teacher and tutors to teachers I've ever seen. So maybe that's a good place to start. Like how did like what was the model? How did you even come up with it? How did you find the funding for something like that? So the model started with, you know, the likes of Sue Walsh, Linda Brown, Lorraine Monroe. Like I came from that tribe too before you did. So like I was a grad student. I thought the people in the Ivory Tower were really nice, but didn't seem to really understand what made kids tick. And there were like people out there in the world that were really doing the work. And so I got pulled into the same orbit as you and wrote the match charter in 98, got rejected, rewrote it for 99, got approved and opened the school in Boston in 2000. And so before we got to that like mega tutoring model, it actually started with the handshake stuff that you guys were just talking about. Oh, wow. So I got a guy to be our founding principal who had been a Massachusetts teacher of the year, this really salt of the earth guy named Charlie Spizzato. Mm. And here we are now, 20 some years after that. When I talk to the kids now, you know, in their mid 30s who went to that high school, the ritual they remember most is the authenticity with which. Charlie Spizzato would greet each and every kid at the door with a handshake and like a ritual and asking them, you know, like, oh, how's your aunt doing? Like he was so in touch with the kids. He just sort of had an ongoing, authentic thing that he did just to make the kids feel welcome. And then on the way out, exactly the same thing on the way out the door. And I was fascinated by that because it was the sharpest contrast I ever saw between what I was learning in grad school at Harvard about ed policy and like what it really meant to build relationships. That was just one piece of it, but it was very authentic. And I was sort of like, wait, what? This is really what the kids are remembering? It's not any of the fancy shit that I was coming up. Oh, we're going to do these cool media projects or whatever. Like the kids to this day, that's their anchor. That's their foundational experience. I was welcomed in a real way that i now you're reminding me you pivoted right like you had an original idea the media stuff right yeah so what caused you to pivot was it meeting charlie so no i think i was lucky to meet charlie and you know for him to become the founding principal of the school the original idea guys was kind of like no excuse the school meets project-based learning hmm. and what i was trying to personally bring to the table comma which sucked when i did it doesn't inherently suck, but my version of project-based learning didn't really go so well. And what I noticed instead is the kids were responding really well to the Charlie old school stuff of relationships, and they were responding really well to ad hoc, old-fashioned tutoring. So that was the pivot. It was like, huh, maybe what we can do is sort of jettison this media and technology theme I'm not saying it was inherently flawed. I'm saying like my execution of it was not good. And the question became, how can we get kids high quality tutoring on steroids? And that intersected with this crazy thing where we had found this building and you know how hard it is to get charter school buildings. It's kind of crazy in Boston, not an easy real estate market. We'd gotten this building and it had a, like an empty floor on the top floor. And we were like, huh, what if we turn that thing into a dorm and then we got all these 22-year-olds who didn't know what they were doing with their lives but maybe had a year to kill before med school and we would get these workaholic kids to come at age 22, spend a year with us, be tutors. Every day they'd come downstairs and work 10 hours like tutoring kids and combine that with like good old-fashioned teaching, let's say, and relationship stuff. And that's really what launched the trajectory of the school. How'd you afford that? Like, what was the fight? Was it AmeriCorps grants? So it was a mix. There were some AmeriCorps mixed in. From a 22-year-old's point of view, they didn't have to pay for housing. They basically lived in a, you know, a dorm. So it wasn't great, but they didn't, they had very low expenses, right? It wasn't bad though. I've been up there. It's pretty nice. Yeah, it wasn't bad. And so that really gave, and that was sort of like, we coined this term called the high dosage tutoring. But like you're saying, the amount of tutoring came about because we had this weird situation where we could essentially afford all these low-cost, super hard-working 22-year-olds to do all the tutoring and free up the regular teachers to kind of do what they normally did. And so did it work? Two-part question. Like, did it work? And what did it look like at its best? Like, if you're walking around the school, what are you seeing? Like, are the tutors in most classes or are they 
are there special tutoring parts of the day? Yeah. Are they kind of milling? Like, are they circulating while general education teachers are teaching? Or do they have like a special place where kids go? Yeah. At its peak, it worked amazing. And it was like a, like a combo from a kid's point of view. Because on any given year, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, maybe you'd have a few teachers that were great, maybe a few that you thought were just so-so or, you know. And similarly, maybe a couple of your four years of high school or five years if you needed it, you would feel like, I have this awesome tutor. And some years you would think the tutor is so-so. So when you go back 20 years, the kids remember a mix of different teachers they loved, like a normal kid at any school. Some that were good, some not so good. And the same with their tutors. But some of the kids to this day, and you can see their traffic on Facebook, are still pretty close with the tutor they had 20 years ago. Mm. So there was some really awesome stuff going on. From a logistical point of view, we were able to redo the schedule. So if you were a 10th grader in our school, your school day might be 8.30 to 10.30. You have two normal classes from 10.30 to 1. Maybe it was all tutoring, you know, two on one, two kids and one tutor. And then you'd have three more classes and you'd be done for the school day. So it was like really woven into your day in a pretty high dosage amount. It wasn't like the tutors were wandering around in the classes. It would be like if you were tutoring Chris and me, we would come to you for two straight hours of just Ravi. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of Ravi. That is a lot of Ravi. That's a mixed example. But Chris, like I said, sometimes the kids, you know, the tutor didn't connect and sometimes they did. Yeah. I think it would be good with me. I don't know about (laughs) Ravi. You know, I have this question for you. So like you like were OG. So you started, I heard you say just now, the no excuses school. And I remember when that meant like, you know, the no excuses was for the adults, like the adults could make no excuses. And over time, opponents of charters kind of morphed that into being about like no excuses for kids. It's like a prison camp and that whole thing. But you go back to 98. And I wonder if over all that time, it's like 20 something years, how you evolved in your original understanding the middle of your understanding, and then when you left, like what was your evolution of charter guy? Yeah, through all of that time. Worth interjecting, by the way, that that I I, w- I was in high school when you started your first high school. That's wild. Amazing. Yeah, you're basically just saying I'm old, but that's cool. <laughs> I was about to say thanks, thanks, thanks for that. Okay. Um, I think my evolution. So beginning, it was just as you know, it's like you, you open this thing called a school, and the operational challenge of delivering is so hard. Everything you're putting, everything you have into trying to create a functional place, and then to pivot so you're building on a functional platform so it can become a good place. And you know, you guys I mean the amount of to use, you know, the phrase you're using, sweating the details it takes for the people to execute that so the kids have like a good experience. I mean, that's insane. So that was part one is just look around at the other people that are doing this well. A great thing about Boston Charters in that era was everybody was so welcoming. And so you weren't really competing for any resources. Occasionally you might compete for philanthropy or you occasionally you might compete for real estate, but for the most part, you could just go to anybody and just find what they're doing the best. And then they would let you copy that and you could try to bring that back as best you could for the kids. So that that was sort of phase one was just the fight, the the Sue Walsh, Linda Brown, Lorraine Monroe, like urgency. <laughs> like set aside the anything, like as long as you're going hard at it, you've got a chance. I think that for me over time. So I stopped doing Match. I left Match to join Bridge in 2013. And as you both know nationally, I know the Boston version of this story, like the whole zeitgeist of charters started to change like 2014, 15, I guess you could put a better date yeah. on it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I sort of accidentally got in where like I'm still an old guy who uses the term, you know, no excuse at school, which is all fraught and all this stuff that I kind of bypassed some of that era, I think that the biggest concern I've had over the years and that, you know, Roland Fryer and Will Dobby have done some work on this and the Charter Growth Fund to their credit has quietly done some work on this is a lot of the kids who went to charters and did everything we asked and sort of got through our schools and then got through college are struggling in the labor market. Not everybody, but a meaningful enough group of kids that I was like, back in the day, we were saying, hey, if you join us and you kind of go on this journey with us through college, 
part of the reason is you're poor. You don't want to be poor. You can be the first in your family. You'll kind of get out of this orbit. And the actual data on that has been somewhat disturbing. I think the actual economic outcomes of the kids, I'm just talking about the kids who sort of did everything that the charter school people said they should do. And so that's something I'm sort of working on a little bit on the side. I have a project on that, but just learning about that and trying to understand the why of that. That's one of my big concerns about, you know, what we thought we were doing. There's all the sort of, I don't know the right word besides political, but by that I mean both external and inside the school politics that has changed what it means to be one of these schools. And Chris, to your point, when I talk to the people still doing the work and still working in these schools in Boston, it used to be we had this camaraderie around like, hey, we're all going to work really hard. And at least Mm -hmm. that's unobjectionable, right? The adults are all going to work hard. And now it's like, even that question is like a fraught, like, wait a minute, are we... I'm going to inelegantly, this isn't my turf, I'm a nerd, so I don't know how to say this the right way, but there's sort of this question of like, is it good to work a 70-hour week in order to help a bunch of kids? And like it used to be, we're all like, yeah. And now it's like, well, maybe not. Maybe we need to be sustainable. And then I'm just trying to like, well, what does that mean? Is it like 50 hours a week, 30 hours? Like how much adult time is going into the kids has really changed a lot. It's a tough question because you and I both are not in the work anymore. You lasted longer than I did, I think, if I'm doing the math correctly. But we both didn't put a full career into it, running that one school, right? We, like you're still involved in education. So I, I, I'm sympathetic to people who want to make the work more sustainable. I think the challenge is that kid gets one chance at that grade level. So you want to put your heart and soul into it. You want to say, all right, it's great if I'm around for 40 years in the work, but if I don't offer this extra two hours to this kid, they won't catch up in time. And so that's the tension. Before we move to to bridge, and this is related to that point, I imagine you, like me, keep a long list of things you would do differently if you were to start that school again. What are some of the highlights of that list? Well, I feel like the good part or the innovation of charters is there's certain freedoms you get, but there's certain things where you really don't. That's the way, I guess, looking back at this, the way I see it now is we did have a lot of freedom around like things like parent communication, or you could do this money ball strategy around talent, or there were things that you were permitted to try to innovate or change. All those things went under the banner of how. But the what and the why of the school you're still constrained enormously by the school. Like the the state is basically saying, hey, look, more or less, you're running an operation that's doing math, English, science, history for these amount of hours. And if you want to add a little on top, that's fine. But like, that's where your money needs to go. That's where your adult time needs to go. That's where your accountability is all wrapped up. And, you know, I think like a lot of people who were young when they got involved with charters and then now are older and have their own kids. Part of it is just the passage of time, but I do think part of it is having your own kids. Like you realize what we weren't really allowed to do is some version of like changing the what and the why of the school. And a lot of it, if I did it all over, I don't know that I would be allowed to do it under the charter rules, but I would be much more trying to meet kids where they are at their entry point. And I don't mean that in like a loose loosey-goosey way. I mean, with all the energy and force we could bring to it, but really finding the strengths of kids, building their confidence. I think the way parents and family do for kids, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to take somebody and, and, and make sure they have a strong, positive self-identity and then create positive momentum in any reasonable direction and then build outward from there. So I think instead, you know, a school like ours would meet a bunch of kids and sort of say essentially to all of them, look, you all have potential. You can all do this journey. It's going to be hard. We're here to help. But this is the prescribed journey for everybody. And I would not be, if possible, I would not be starting at that point with this sort of, hey, everybody, college is the right path. as like an automatic truism. And you know, essentially our first words to kids were like some version of, hey, we like you and you're really, really low in math. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you know, it's sort of, <laughs> and and it was authentic and there's like a pediatrician truism, like, hey, we're going to work well together, so you're much better off. But I think that if charters weren't so constrained around 
the academic core, I mean, I think K-12 broadly, you would have seen a flowering of different approaches of charters that reached kids in different ways. I don't know which ones would have worked. I mean, maybe the, what I'm thinking would have been just as fraught or just as messed up. But I'm going to push back on this in just a little bit. Yep. And that's what we do here <laughs> is we push back on something. So I consider charters to be like driver's licenses. And just because you get a driver's license doesn't mean you're going to be a good driver. And what people do with their driver's license, they go lots of different places. And I feel like charter schools did go a lot of different places. And at the core of it, there were the, you know, kind of balls to the wall academics. Listen, kid, I can help you get a fighting shot in life, but I know that like I have a college degree and I know what it means in the, I can poo poo it all I want, but I know it, it'll mean something different from you versus if you don't have one. So there was in the early days, there was this sense of number one yep. urgency. The problem is urgent. Yes. We have to get you from here to here, from bottom to this quickly because we're urgent about it. There too, there was a sense of mission in that like not everybody is meant to be an emergency room doctor. Yep. Right. Some people need to be a family practitioner. And if you're one of those educators who doesn't want to be an emergency room doctor, don't come to Charter World. Don't come and do this thing because we're actually helping kids that have 400 years of marginalization behind them. And actually, we know for a fact the difference between not going to college and going to college, for instance, like something that small in terms of your earnings. We can get fancy with the research like Fryer and others do, but we do know for a general fact that some high school versus high school completion, versus college entrance, versus college completion, and so on, each comes with a premium. So in the early days, it was, can we get you further up the premium scale? Can we get you, like, push hard? We're going to work our asses off to get do this. And you know what? No one goes into the Peace Corps thinking, hey, this is going to be a piece of cake you know, helping to eradicate poverty. That's, this is going to be a piece of cake, you know, send me over to Africa. Oh my God, it's so tough working in the villages. Oh my God. Did you see the stuff we had to do? No one talks like that, but that sense of mission, I think did yield to the let a thousand flowers bloom, the hippie charter schools, some of the ones that didn't have an academic focus. I shouldn't say academic. They all had an academic focus. They didn't have an outcome focus. Like some of them were more like, yeah, you know, just let the kids kind of like, you know, hey, you know, all they need is a hug. And, you know, well, you know, kids do need hugs. Like I have kids, they need hugs. I understand that. You know, maybe reading and a hug and maybe the ability and numeracy and a hug, the ability to calculate interest on a loan, you know, in a hug. That's what I think is lost in charter world, partially for good reason, because the backlash was so bad to charters and people beat up on charters for being joyless test prep factories where kids were walking in a line and had their finger. And I get that. I get all that. But I do think, I do think some of that urgency was a big loss, like losing that as part of the core reason that people came to charter world is a real material loss of what chartering can do for kids. Let me sort of clarify, address, I think, because I thousand percent agree, like urgency is the word that I most took associated with the early period of charters as a good thing, the lost thing. And the unifying simplicity of college is one thing that made match possible. Like let's all come together and work mm-hmm. our collective asses mm-hmm. off. Kids and adults alike in order to reach this thing. So 100%. And plus, I started with like a high skepticism of anything hippie. In part, but like (laughs) in part, Chris, because I don't, I get very uncomfortable when people are squishy about what outcome are you chasing? They're not clearly chasing an outcome. And it's like, well, then how will we ever know if you did your job well? Like you're not pinning yourself to anything. There's no way to falsify what you're saying. And I agree. The way I took Ravi's question is my own thing, which is very genetically wired around both urgency and outcomes orientation. I feel like we were firing all our torpedoes, all of like our institutional energy at too narrow of a band of academics. And if I could have taken, you know, 40% of our capacity and rerouted it, not for like a bullshit, huggy, hippie thing, but for like whatever you would think of as the best ever clinical approach to helping people genuinely in some kind of outcomes-oriented way end up as much stronger, more resilient people. I think I would have chosen that. 
if I felt constrained. And Massachusetts, by the way, was a state where the coin of the realm really was MCAS. So I'm not saying that it would be impossible, but it would have been hard to sort of create a school that combined all the urgency that we both want with these kind of two different outcomes. And so we ended up focusing, I think, more narrowly on this MCAS and then college, you know, success stuff, which was a good piece of one set of outcomes, but didn't feel full enough in hindsight 20 years later. You know, I know Robbie wants to to push forward a little bit, but I do have a question for you too, just about two different states, right? Like, so I'm in Minnesota and we are the birthplace of charter school. So everybody listening, you are welcome. Uh, thank you very much. I like to say it every single time <laughs> that I say that. We gave, yes, Joe Nathan and Ted Caldery and Ed Evolving and Louise, Louise Sundin, who people should look up, was the right-hand person to Al Shanker and is a, a long-term unionist who now actually authorized charter schools. The Minneapolis Federation of Teachers actually authorized charters. So there you go. You're welcome, world. We've given you something great. But based on what you just said, I wonder why, because Massachusetts is a very kind of old school, traditional education state, top of the list on many things. They're like, if there was a Finland of the United States, it's, you know, widely seen as them. And given that, I mean, we have a thousand flowers bloom charter situation. Why do you think that charters in a more restrictive market like, you know, Boston or Massachusetts actually perform better? And the kids, especially black kids are seen as doing like much better in that market than one like ours, where I love our market. And I love that we have so many different kinds of affirming schools, but they're actually not coming close to what you guys do in Boston. And can I say just one thing as somebody who traveled around to see these schools at the time, right around before you left. So 2010 and 2011 were the the two years that I traveled the country most to see schools. At that time, from what I understand, this is somewhat still true. Maybe if I were to rank the top 10 schools I'd ever seen during that period of time, and I'd seen so many, I don't know, like 60 or 70 during that period of time, if I were to, and they were picked specifically because they were great. So that's like 60 or 70 really good schools. If I were to rank the top 10, more than half of that, so at least five or six were in Boston. That's how good the schools in Boston were. Excel Academy, Roxbury Prep, Brook, Match, Roxbury Prep, I think, was kind of transitioning at that point, but it was still somewhat good. And then you had this new wave of unlocking potential and all these other people who came through and did turnaround work better than anybody I'd seen. It was incredible. So I just want to add that, that that was quite the environment. Yeah. Well, I remember like a bloggy debate about this question one time and people arguing, oh, it's the law or the regs or something. I just thought it was honestly, the building excellent school, Mr. Holland Opus, because most of the schools that you're describing came from the same, you know, Sue Walsh, Linda Brown, Lorraine Monroe as like their intellectual godmother, where we all sort of had common DNA. And I think if funders are listening, which I know they do, I think we've lost some of that magic. Like I think some of these institutions and people, we kind of showed them the door as a movement over the past 10 years. I don't think we treated them particularly well on the way out. And I think we've lost the sort of transfer, like the sort of that one generation to the next, the sense of respect and the sense of longevity of the work like obviously you always update things like you change the norms of how people do certain things but i think there are certain handovers that bes is one of them where you know much respect to the people over there now but something was lost there and there are a few institutions that we did this with all at the same time as a movement and we got it wrong and i think a lot of us were asleep at the switch. Like I, I and I'm not just blaming the funders on this because I was invited to that board and I didn't. You know, Doug Lamov called me up once and was like, "Hey, you know, be interested in you joining this board." And I didn't do it, and I should have. It makes me sad, you know, that we we didn't protect some of these institutions. Okay, well, we we have only a few minutes left, so I want to ask you, and we'll probably have to invite you back to spend more time on this. But you transitioned from charter world to international education world. Bridge International Academies, for people who are not familiar with it, what is, you were the chief academic officer of Bridge International Academies for a few years. What is it and what does it mean to be the chief academic officer? So Bridge International Academies is a network of schools in Africa and India that at this point is really big. I mean, when I was there, it grew to like uh, half a million kids. It's now like 1.2 million kids across, let's say, 2,200 schools, mostly Nigeria, Kenya, some in Uganda, Liberia, 
India. And Bridge itself started as the closest thing to charters, I think, in a lot of the rest of the world is low-cost private schools. Like maybe like, you know, Catholic schools used to be thought of, I think, here. So parents pay some tuition, but it's pretty low. And parents are basically fleeing to some degree the local public school. And the number one reason they'll say they're leaving, you know, fleeing the local public school, if here sometimes, you know, there might be a question of like safety or, you know, aspiration. I think they're like what the World Bank would say is teacher absenteeism is a big problem. And then just you know, fundamental getting the trains to run on time is a big problem. So that's like the number one reason I think parents, hundreds of millions of parents choose schools like these. And these are like extremely poor families on average that, you know, might earn a few dollars a day. And give us a sense of the sheer size of the network. So the model has changed in a way that would fascinate you guys. So the original model that I worked on was low-cost private schools, this sort of parent pay piece in Kenya was our first country, and then we grew it out from there. Co-founders, husband and wife, created these schools. And the academic problem that I think most people are trying to solve who work on schools in developing world is what Lamav always called ratio. That there's like a classroom. If you sort of sit in the back of the room, you're like, holy cow, the kids are trying to pay attention, but the teacher's like in this never-ending monologue. I mean, it could go hours. I mean, it's just like, like if you haven't spent time there, like it's crazy. So I was like, you know, a novice to these situations. I was like, these poor kids, like there's no way, they're not allowed to do any of their own reading, any of their own writing. Like, there's no meaningful group discussion at the table. There's, like, nothing. And so there's a a guy named Ben Piper who already, at the time that I joined Bridge, was already doing, separately, an academic, like, but a guy on the ground, who'd invented this combination of curriculum and then training that went with the curriculum that could really change the classroom experience for kids. So what Ben did is essentially... I'll massively oversimplify. Imagine a teacher who would say, all right, kids, and they're literally reading a script, but the script says, all right, Chris and Ravi, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to talk for two minutes and explain to you how to find the slope of a line, but that's it. Then I'm going to stop talking. And they're literally reading this out loud. They're blurting this out. Then for 10 minutes, you guys at your seats are going to try to work on this. And here's the way I want you to work on it at your seats while I circulate. And so Ben came up with all these ways, whereas... Billions of philanthropy had always tried to, quote unquote, retrain teachers without any success. Ben figured out a way to pair the curriculum with the training to give the kids the experience they needed where suddenly they're in the game and doing the work. And so at Bridge, I think a big part of what we did academically is learn from Ben and model a lot of our own curriculum and training on what he was already doing and proving with some like pretty prominent randomized control trials. Yeah, I remember I've seen some of the data. It's it's remarkable, and I think one of the debates around Bridge, and I haven't paid attention to this debate in years, but but there was this period of time where I remember the debate was the aesthetic ideal of teaching, whereas I think people were reacting to oh, teachers reading a script like this is like somehow like an affront to like this beautiful thing of teaching, and then that was coming basically right up against the data, which was saying, this is really working. And that seemed to be a debate. Am I getting that wrong? Like, I remember that being like a very prominent debate. I think you have that right. I would say that two components, just like with Ed Reform US, there's politically motivated critiques that sometimes, as you guys know, are just like really far off target of what's happening in real life, but they play well in certain media frames. So that happens. And then there's legitimate critique. And I feel like what you're saying is some of both. Some of what they were saying is massively mischaracterizing what the kids were otherwise getting in their former school. They're just sitting. I mean, it was like it wasn't scripted curriculum. It was a teacher giving a monologue for seven hours. Like nobody would ever defend that. If they watched three minutes of video, they'd be like, all right, bridge is better. But I still think at the same time, you know, the scripts can be clunky. Like it's like if you're not doing a lot of R and D around this, and you don't have a system to kind of capture like what are your good lesson plans versus your mediocre and your bad ones, it can be very frustrating to be a teacher in that system. So I think on average, all the data and in real life, the bridge experience is better than what the kids were getting before. But the critique is also right. Like if you don't do a lot of work, you could easily be not proud of the lesson guides that you're creating. 
But I think that's equally true in the U.S. And in fact, in the U.S., my big critique of all these groups that are making curriculum like crazy is they refuse to be accountable for what the average teacher does. It's sort of like you get a group like Ed Reports that literally reads the lesson and says, you check 27 strands that are included in Common Core, you get an A. I know this because like Match literally has a curriculum publishing arm that, you know, we get these plaudits. But it's not plaudits because some teacher in Omaha, Nebraska is actually taking these lessons and having success with them. It's, you know, sort of like, I'm just, it's almost like instead of rating the movie, you're rating the script of the movie. But that's just part of what makes a good movie. You know, what's interesting about this, and I should should say this for listeners, if you're not like an education insider and you're listening to conversations like this, this is the type of thing that the show wants to unfold for people is there are mysteries behind a lot of the things that you don't see. There's like a, a magic back world to education. You just mentioned Ed Reports. Ed Reports, someone is going to listen to this and not have a clue who that is and what they do, but they can be a real bottleneck. Not only do they you know, hold this kind of rating power or whatnot, but they also don't get to things very quickly. It takes them a long time to, to get stuff put through. Sometimes they have backlogs of them. And That is just one example of many things in public education and education world that the public wouldn't know about actually prevents us from getting all the good stuff. This is why we can't have nice things. This is why we can't have, (laughs) this is why we can't have great prepared teachers. This is why we can't have great prepared curriculum. This is why we can't have schools that actually operate with the way that science would have us have them operate is we have so many actors within education world that act as bottlenecks, gatekeepers. And a couple of things else that I heard in what you were saying today too is the sense of education requiring some experimentation and some testing and some learning and some failures and some get back up again after your failures, not as a fatal flaw, not as a, oh my God, you fell down and you failed. So therefore we should never do what you did ever again. But it's just an iterative cycle of what education is supposed to be about. Charter World was supposed to bring a lot of that to fore, the ability to experiment with some things and try some things and fail at some things. And now that it has, feels like it's almost become like a, an, a bad word of like, you know, well, you failed. You should never do a charter again. You know, and if teaching was only that simple, if teaching and learning were only so simple that you should just never do again the thing that you failed at and, you know, try and test or whatever. Anyways, that's just my soapbox for, for people listening who are not initiated in ed world so much. This is why civilians have such a hard time understanding why we just can't get our kids to read like, and, and why they have these like back to basics movements. Like it just seems so like it's so full of people with fancy book learning who just can't get our kids to read, which just seems weird to folks. And then they go on these kind of Neanderthal back to basics movements because they want to make it simple again. Make education simple again. And that's just my soapbox right now. For people listening right now, you may not get a lot of this, but it's important. It's important as citizens that we educate ourselves on how these things work and that we have informed opinions about them. Well, I I know we all have to go. So, Mike, I know we just touched on a bunch of stuff here. So, uh, obviously, we'd love to talk to you again. And we haven't talked about even the stuff you're working on right now. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Hey, great to see you both. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show on the Lost Debate Network. We are always happy that you guys listen and that you give us feedback, that you're part of the Citizen Stewart Show family now. Appreciate you all. We'll see you in the next episode. 